Well, tonight, let's open up our Bibles now to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Lamentations, if you're looking for it, is right between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You could kind of skip over it if you didn't know it was there. Lamentations. Father, we pray that you'd speak to us now as we study a new book of the Bible together. Lord, just, I pray you'd open up eyes and implant your word deep into the hearts of, of we, your people, Lord. We need you, Lord. We need your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Lamentations, it got its name from both the Septuagint, which is the early Greek translation of the Old Testament, and also from the Latin Vulgate translation. The modern English translations followed the Greek and Latin traditions and called it Lamentations. And it is an appropriate title, for the book consists of five laments which mark the funeral of a once beautiful city of Jerusalem. Now, you may be wondering, what is a lament anyway? A lament is a cry of agony and mourning in poetic form. This book contains five poems of 22 verses each, except for chapter 3, which has 66 verses, but each verse of the first four chapters begins with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And chapter three, having three lines for each letter. And while the poetry that is expressed, filled with pain and sorrow over the loss and destruction of Jerusalem, there is also an acceptance of the punishment for the sins of Israel in their disregard for the way of the Lord. And there is also an expression of hope that God will one day provide deliverance from their captivity. Now, although the name of the author is not mentioned, within both Jewish and Christian tradition, they ascribe authorship to the prophet Jeremiah. And again, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, even adds a note asserting that Jeremiah is the writer of the book. In addition, when the early Christian church father Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he added a note claiming that Jeremiah was the author of Lamentations. And therefore, Lamentations has often been referred to as the sequel or as the postscript to the book of Jeremiah. Like the book of Job, Lamentations shows us a man struggling with the results of evil and suffering within the world. Have you ever struggled with that subject? Why so much evil? Why so much suffering within this world? It's a common concern and questions are raised as a result. But the suffering that Jeremiah observed was the result of Israel's sins. 
Yet at the core of this book, at the center of this lament over the effects of sin in the world, there are a few verses that are devoted to finding hope within the Lord. Lamentations reminds us of the importance not only of mourning over our sin and the sin of the world, but more importantly, asking the Lord for his forgiveness when we fail him. You remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now consider for a moment with me the reason for the prophet's lamenting. 800 years before the ministry of Jeremiah began, Joshua had led the nation of Israel into the promised land. And during his farewell address, Joshua reminded the people of God's faithfulness. It was there in Joshua chapter 23, verse 14, that Joshua said these words, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. What a wonderful reminder that was for the nation of Israel that everything God promised to do, he did. Everything he said he was going to accomplish, he accomplished. He gave them victory. He gave them the land. He brought them in just like he had promised. He hadn't failed. And by the way, he doesn't fail. But attached to this reminder of God's faithfulness was a prophetic warning to future generations. And in verse 15 and 16 of the same chapter, listen to what Joshua goes on to say. Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you've gone and you've served other gods and you've bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Joshua gives the nation this warning not to turn away from God. And in the day that they turned away from God, God would set himself against his people and they would suffer the consequences of their sin. Now, by the time that Jeremiah began to prophesy to the nation of Israel, the nation had reached its lowest point, morally, politically, and spiritually. The last great and godly king of Judah was named Josiah. And when he first came to the throne, the first thing that he did is he made repairs to the temple. And while they were clearing out all of the idols and working in the construction, the renovation of the temple, they made a discovery. They discovered the law of God. And the law of God, which was hidden of all places in the temple, they brought it to the king and they read it to him. 
And when the word of God was read before the king, he was humbled, he was broken, and he realized how far the nation had drifted away from a relationship with God. And so Josiah then was motivated and inspired to turn the people back to God. And during his reign, as he just demolished all of the idols, cleared out all of the altars, there was a temporary revival among the nation. But then tragedy struck, and Josiah was killed on the battlefield. His son, Jehoiahaz, took his place. But Jehoiahaz refused to walk in his father's footsteps, and instead, he turned to idolatry. Egypt, then in power, removed Jehoiahaz as king and replaced him with Eliakim and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And in the middle of his reign, the Babylonians gained momentum by defeating the Egyptians and began to make their way down to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they took wicked King Jehoiakim away to Babylon. Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, great names, obviously, in the Bible, took his place. And he also was a very wicked king, only reigning for three months. Jehoiachin was carried off to Babylon, and then Zedekiah became king. And King Zedekiah attempted to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah had warned him not to fight against it. And yet Zedekiah did not listen to the prophet. Consequently, the city, the temple, and the people were either displaced, dispersed, put to death, carried off into Babylonian captivity for the next 70 years. Because of Israel's idolatrous and apostate condition, the Lord had raised up Babylon as an instrument of his judgment and correction. And this plan of Babylon coming down to carry them away into captivity was revealed to the prophet Jeremiah. And for 40 years, Jeremiah prophesied, warning the people, pleading with the people concerning this coming captivity to repent, turn back to God. But they wouldn't listen. Jeremiah was referred to as the weeping prophet as no one responded to his message. The message that Jeremiah proclaimed was not popular, thus it was not received, it was rejected. His prophecies pronounced God's justice and judgment on at least 20 different countries and cities. His prophetic warnings were spoken against kings, against princes, against false prophets, against priests, and people from every walk of life. Jeremiah was ignored. He was persecuted. He was imprisoned for his warnings. And with tears in his eyes, he watched the people persistently pursue idolatry and sin against God. And he was there when his prophecies came to pass and the Babylonians came in and destroyed everything and carried 
the people away. The book of Jeremiah really serves as a book of warning, whereas the book of Lamentations is a book of mourning. The prophet, imagine him sitting among the ruins and the devastation of a once beautiful city, a beautiful temple where the glory of God dwelt. And he grieves over what could have been avoided. There are several themes found within these few chapters. One is the judgment of God upon sin. A second theme is the compassion of God on the sinner. Another theme is the faithfulness of God to the unfaithful and the comfort of God to the broken. We open with chapter one and we see the sorrow of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah speaks of what Jerusalem was and what they became. Look at what it says in verse one of Lamentations. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she is who was great among the nations. The princes among the provinces have become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. As Jeremiah begins to grieve over his people and over his city, make note of the fact that he draws a comparison to what they were in the past and what they had become because of their rebellion against God. And what we will find is a lesson of what happens to those who turn from the Lord. Where they start out and where they end up. What they had and what they gave away. That is why Jeremiah says, how lonely sits the city, notice this, that was, past tense, was full of people. At one time, the city of Jerusalem was prospering. It was blessed. The streets were filled and flourishing with families, but now it was, it was empty and it was lonely. What an empty and ultimately lonely life sin produces. Jeremiah likens the city to a widow. And within the scriptures, remember this, Israel was likened to the bride of the Lord. And Jeremiah had frequently characterized Jerusalem as a woman, especially as God's unfaithful wife. And thus after the city's destruction, Jerusalem is personified now as a widow. Jeremiah also mentions that they had become slaves. They were once princes and princesses. They were ruling and, and had a place of nobility, but these who ruled in this place and were given this position by the grace of God had now become slaves, 
At one time in their history, the Jewish people had been slaves in Egypt, and they cried out 400 years of rigorous bondage under the whip of the taskmasters of Egypt, and they cried out for a deliverer, and God heard their cry, and he raised up a deliverer in Moses and led them out of slavery, out of bondage. They were a free people. But because they rebelled against God, they went right back to being slaves once again. In studying through the book of Romans, you may recall that the Apostle Paul had warned the church not to use their freedom in Christ to commit sin in order that the grace of God might abound. You remember he asked the question, shall we sin that grace might abound? Isn't that a great idea? If we sin, God can be gracious, and this is good for him and his glory. Paul said, certainly not. But then he went on to give reasons why that was such a bad idea. One of which was although they had been delivered and freed from the bondage of sin to go back and to pursue what they'd been delivered from would make them a slave again. That is why in Romans chapter 6, you remember Paul said, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Why would you want to go back to what you've been delivered from only to become a slave once again. See, that's the deceptive part about sin. It makes you think that I can handle it now. I'm more mature now. I know what the Bible says. I know when to put on the brakes. I know when to step back. I know, when, I know where the line is. I know how close I can come to the cliff without falling off. Listen, the Bible says, can a man take fire into his bosom, into his stomach and not get burned? Do we think that we're really that strong? Listen, if you think you're that strong, if we think we're that strong, listen carefully, we're self-deceived. We're not that strong. And so here they are delivered free people, slaves, once again. And Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 2, concerning Jerusalem, she weeps. She cries bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Now notice this, among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. And all her friends... They dealt treacherously with her. They become her enemies. What a sad condition this is. Jeremiah typifies the city as a woman weeping among all of her lovers. Many times, Israel had been guilty of spiritual fornication and adultery. Again, if Israel, if the people were likened to the bride of the Lord, when they began to go off and pursue idolatry in some of the most carnal ways imaginable, it's as if they were going out, being unfaithful to the Lord, pursuing, in other words, other lovers. The Lord had been the husband, as it were. And when they went out and worship, they were called, it wasn't just adultery. In fact, it went beyond that. The prophet said to the people, you've played the harlot. Now you're like a prostitute. 
with all of your lovers. That's how far it had gone. But now that she's lost everything and is suffering the consequences of her sin, none of those idolatrous lovers were there to comfort her. They had no compassion for her. There was nothing they could do for her, that is, for the city. And the friends that she thought she had, they were now all her enemies. They could care less about her condition. It's so interesting how this parallels a life that pursues sin. All these people that your friends are going to be there for you, they love you, they're there. Well, when, when this happens, where are they? Nobody's there. This person, this guy that told you he loved you, this girl that said she wanted to be with you, and now she's gone, the sinful relationship has ended, and you're left with nothing. Where are they now? They're not there to comfort you. And you're alone, and you're crying, and you're weeping. It says bitterly over the situation. That's a miserable place to be. They were only with her for what they could get from her. And that is what happened to Jerusalem. And so in verse 3, Jeremiah says, Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. And all her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. Again, how tragic this is. They were free. They were living in their own land. Now they were transported, taken off into Babylon. And by the way, when they were taken off into Babylon, those who went in that dispersion, in that captivity, were people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others. They were the ones who were carried off from their families and dwelt in Babylon for the next 70 years. And it says here that there was no rest. They were overtaken. They had experienced in the past fellowship with God, the glory of God, the joy of the Lord had been their strength, but now they traded a relationship with God for the idols of this world. And notice the descriptive word that is used here to, to share with us how they felt. The word is empty. That, that's how it left them. It promised fulfillment. It promised to be satisfying. It promised to, to, to somehow bring them to this place of contentment. But what it produced was emptiness. It was vain. It was fleeting. It couldn't satisfy the longings that they thought that it would satisfy. And how many people, you can put that over everything. You remember Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you drink from this well, you will thirst again. And people are drinking from all different wells in this world, trying to be fulfilled. And what happens when you get down at the end of the road? Emptiness. It's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill. It's temporary. And they were empty. There was no rest. Oh, but the rest that you can find in Jesus. Oh, but the fulfillment that you can find, not in a broken cistern that doesn't hold any water, but in the one who contains living water and offers it freely to all who are thirsty. What a contrast that is. But let me ask you where, where are you, where are you drinking from tonight? What well are you pursuing? What are you searching for? Are you finding it there? Do you find contentment there? Or do you still find this, do you see the emptiness of it all? 
And how many of us could testify tonight that we had to come to the end of ourselves and an emptiness to realize there's a void here that only God himself is big enough to fill. Jeremiah goes on to describe the roads. He says in verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feast. All her gates are desolate. Uh, desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries, they become the master. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. Now in the scriptures, when you see the word Zion, it is a reference to the hill on which the temple of Jerusalem was built. It is also used synonymously with the city of Jerusalem, Zion. Thus, when it says that the roads that were leading to Zion are mourning, it's a reference to the roads that the people would travel to the temple to celebrate the feast. And by the way, whenever you go to Jerusalem, you are always going up to Jerusalem. From every direction, you are going up to Jerusalem. And so you would travel on these roads from different areas and you would make your way up to Jerusalem certain times of the year for feasts, for celebrations, for tabernacles, for Passover, for Pentecost. And you would make your way up. And, and when you would travel on those roads, you would travel with your family. You would travel with your friends, with your neighbors. And, and that kind of a journey on your way up to Jerusalem where we're going to offer sacrifices, where there's atonement going to be made, where we're going to camp out outside the city, it was joyful. Those roads were full of joy and conversation. It was a blessing. But Jeremiah says, in light of Israel's sin and transgression, those roads that were once occupied with pilgrims on their way to worship God are empty. And the roads if they could speak, if you could hear them, they would be mourning because no one travels them anymore. No one is making their way to visit the Lord there in Jerusalem. Jeremiah tells us why these things have taken place. Why are the roads mourning? Why has the enemy become the master? Why has... Israel's lovers turn their back upon her and do not comfort her. He tells us the reason why. He says, because of the multitude of her transgressions. That is why. The suffering that occurred was because of the consequences of her rebellion against God. And folks, listen. When you observe the suffering, much of the suffering in this world, it is a result of man's rebellion against God. No fear of God. There is suffering in this world, much of which comes at the hands of ungodly people. Suffering. And it's a tough question to answer, and it's a whole other study in itself to consider evil and suffering and why it is that it takes place. But one thing that we know for certain is this world is not the way that it was intended to be. 
when God first created it. But when man sinned, sin entered the world. And thus suffering followed. And it continues to follow. And the other thing to consider is this is not how the world will always be. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The kingdom of God will one day be established. And what we see right now will not remain. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and we shall reign with him forever, the Bible says. But there is suffering in the present time. The apostle Paul spoke about suffering. He said, I consider the sufferings of this present world not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Yes, there is suffering. I don't always understand why God allows it. Why would a child die at an early age, and yet a pagan, hater, atheist of God live to be in, its, in his old age. Why? I, I don't know the mind of the Lord. I'm not his counselor. I don't understand. I do know that suffering exists, but I also know that God is good, and I find that the only way to truly attempt to understand some of the suffering in this world is to have a biblical worldview. I cannot think of any other way to observe it apart from a biblical worldview. The greatest suffering that was ever experienced in the, in the person of Christ, look at the suffering of Christ and yet what has been produced. I don't, I don't know the mind of the Lord. And I've been asked many times, if God is so good, you know the rest. Then why does he, is he not powerful enough to stop it? or he doesn't care, or he doesn't exist? Why, why all the suffering in the world? How come God doesn't do something? I remember being asked that question, and it's a fair question. But I remember asking the person that asked me that question. Let me ask you something. Have you ever caused anyone to suffer? Have you ever broken anybody's heart? Have you ever hurt someone? What should God do to you? What should he do to you? What suffering have you caused and how should he respond to you? Answer me that question. It's an interesting way to look at it. But here we see that the suffering that occurred was a result of their sin and the consequences is that they reaped what they had sown. You remember when King Saul had been raised up as the first king of Israel, anointed by Samuel. And he consistently rebelled against God. But you remember that he was given a, another opportunity to go down and fight against the Agagites. Samuel gave him the instructions. And so Saul went down, and when he went down to fight against them, you remember he did not do what God said. He did not follow through with the instructions that were given him. He still rebelled. He still did what he wanted to do instead of what God commanded him to do. And when he was asked why, he made excuses for it. He blamed the people. He blamed Samuel. And yet Samuel responded to him. And this is what Samuel said. He gave him the reason for what was about to transpire. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, the prophet said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord 
he has rejected you from being king. Saul, what's about to happen, what's about to unfold is because, not because of the people, not because of Israel's enemies, not because of me, Samuel would say, it's because you rejected the word of the Lord. That's why you're in the situation you're in right now. You have turned your back on what God has said, and now this is the consequence for your sin. Such was the case with Israel. But then in verse 6 and 7, it says, And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes, they've become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. Verse 7, in the days of her affliction and roaming, look at this, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her, the adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. Jeremiah mentions that Jerusalem suddenly in this condition began to remember what she once had before she went into captivity. She was living in rebellion against God, worshiping idols, enjoying her sin that was pleasurable for a season. And at that time, she didn't remember nor care. She took everything that God had given her for granted. It didn't really matter. She didn't really think about it. It was just, I'm entitled to this. But yet, when it was gone, the reality of her folly set in. And it says she began to remember all the, all the good things, all the pleasant things that she had in the days of old. You know, when you're living a life apart from God, if you're a Christian tonight and you're choosing to turn from the light that you were brought into and go back to darkness that you were delivered from, perhaps spending time with old friends that have never been a good influence on you and you find yourself doing the same old things that you used to do, or maybe pursuing a relationship that is unhealthy. Oh, it's fun. It's exciting, it's exhilarating, it's dangerous. But the question is, at what price? Sin has a price. The price of your marriage? The relationship with your kids? Your ministry, your integrity? Um, I think of the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You remember that he was determined to take what his dad was to give him later on in life, right then, at that moment, wanted it now, and, and his dad gave it to him. And it says he went off into a far country and he began to waste all that he had with prodigal living. He spent all, the Bible says, and it wasn't until he wound up in a pig pen, eating with pigs, that he began to think about what he had done and think about what he had left 
And you remember as he sat there, the story unfolds, he began to remember, even my father's servants have more to eat than I do. And in that moment of remembering from where he had fallen, he decided to return home, to repent, to get things right, prayerfully to be restored. There was remembrance that led to regret, that led to remorse and repentance. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want to feel guilty about what I'm doing. You know what? If you feel guilty and you're doing the wrong thing, good. Maybe that'll lead you back before you end up somewhere you do not want to be. I mean, how many people have made decisions and let things go, and now they live with a life of regret. I can tell you, I've talked to numbers of people, I can't even calculate, who regret the decisions they made and are living with the consequences of it. There was remembrance of what they had. Jerusalem, verse 8, had sinned gravely. Therefore, she's become vile. I mean, that's kind of disgusting. I mean, it got so bad. Like, they're vile now? I mean, I don't think that's what they ever set out to become. But this is, here's, here's the deal. Sin takes you further than you want to go. It makes you into something you do not want to be. They became vile. And all who honored her, they despise her because They've seen her nakedness. They've seen her for what she really is. And she sighs and she turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. Look at this verse, verse 9. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. Another reason for this tragic fall of the nation, verse 9. This is so filled with insight. It says she didn't consider her destiny. She didn't consider where this road would one day lead, where it would end up, where it would take her. And again, that is the deception with sin. Adam and Eve were lied to in the garden and didn't consider what the consequences would be. Samson did not consider what the consequences would be. David did not consider what the consequences would be. Judas did not fully consider what the consequences would be, where this would lead. And that is, that's what's so important, not to trade the eternal for the temporal, but to think to myself, which, which road am I walking on and where is this road going to ultimately lead? Is this leading me closer to Jesus? Is this leading me further away from Jesus? Is this leading me to a glorious end or, or a destructive conclusion? Where am I headed? Where am I going? What road am I on? You know, in the book of Haggai chapter one, Haggai, the prophet also spoke to the people in this way. And this is what he said. He said, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, listen to this, consider your ways. Okay, think about it for a second. You've sown much, you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag 
with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He said, I want you to look, look what's happening. I mean, look what you're, you're doing these things. You're pursuing it, but you're coming up with nothing. It's, it's not what you thought it's going to be. Stop. Stop right there and think about where you're headed and where this is going to end up. And if you don't believe it, look at other people who have already walked down that road. Look at the scriptures. It's full of people. These things were written for our admonition, for our learning, so that we wouldn't make the same mistakes and that we would do the things we're supposed to do and avoid the things we shouldn't do. And, it's, and just because it's in here... We think, well, that would never happen to me. I, I would Listen, it could happen to any of us. And thus we have to consider our ways. And because she didn't consider her destiny, the collapse was awesome. Many today are on the broad road that leads to destruction. They don't consider that it's leading there. They think they will live forever. Or they believe the lie that says when you die, you just simply cease to exist. I don't believe all that stuff about God and the Bible and, you know, uh, heaven and hell. I just believe you you cease to exist or you come back as something else. or you, you know, all of these lies that are out there that keep people in the dark and away from salvation. And what happens is, They're not listening to the one who conquered death and says there's only one way to escape hell. And that's through Christ. Consider your ways. And and maybe that's, I mean, not maybe, it is a word for us. We should consider our ways. Where am I tonight? Where am I walking? Lord, am I on that path? Because listen, I don't know if you ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress. You ever read that book? It's a great book. Maybe the version with the updated language because it's hard with the old, older language. But nonetheless, it's this whole story of this man who sets out on a journey and he leaves and he's making his way to the celestial city and all along the road, there are different trials and different individuals trying to pull him off of the road that leads to life and take him down a path to destruction. It's, it's a wonderful read. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, I believe, used to read it once a month. I mean, he would, he would read it so frequently because there's so much insight. And, and the fact is we have to consider our ways. In verse 10, it says, the adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. I mean, the, the enemy has got a hand in everything. All that is pleasant, the enemy's now tainted it, ruined it, wrecked it. And that's what the enemy wants to do, by the way. The enemy of our soul, he wants to touch all the pleasant things and poison them. He wants to poison your marriage. He wants to poison your relationship with your kids. He wants to poison your ministry. He just wants to have his hand in everything and mess it up. That's his desire. And they let him in. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. And those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O oh Lord, and consider, I am scorned. They weren't, suppo- there was a, they weren't supposed to let the enemy in, but they did. And when they let him in, he ruined everything. And so we stand guard against the adversary. We fight against it. There are boundaries that are set. There are walls that are built for keeping what is evil out and keeping what is good in. And we have to stand guard. We have to be watchmen on the wall, as it were. 
And so it says that the lamentation continues. You move from the sorrow of Jeremiah to the sorrow of Jerusalem. We're almost through, but in verse 12, it's as if the city is now speaking. Jeremiah has been grieving, but it's as if Jerusalem is now speaking and grieving. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see, is there any sorrow like my sorrow? which has been brought on me, which the Lord has afflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above, he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He spread a net for my feet, turned me back. He's made me desolate and faint all day. Verse 14, the yoke of my transgression was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck and he made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those who I am not able to withstand. Here Jeremiah pictures the city and looking at everybody who's passing by and asking the question, have you ever seen anything like this? And Jeremiah mentions this wasn't so much Babylon he's referring to. He's seen the Lord allowed this. It wasn't the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Assyrians. The Lord allowed this. The Lord is the one who made the yoke and put it on our neck. The Lord is the one who gave us over into their hands. Jeremiah mentions the yoke. He said, my sins have been bound into a yoke. A yoke is made of wood. It has attachments that connect an ox to a plow or a wagon. The yoke is often used in Scripture symbolically to represent being forced into submission by a conquering king. And here, this yoke refers to the humiliating submission of Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon came in, and because of her sins, it became a yoke, and now Babylon drags them away where they don't want to go. And the twist on this particular passage is the modification in the image. God declares that the yoke that put the Israelites into submission was made up of their rebellion against him who should have been their proper ruler. Folks, the Bible does warn us, doesn't it, about being careful of who we yoke ourselves to. Because when you're yoked to something or someone, you're connected. You're entwined. I mean, you're, if, if you're equally yoked, we're both going to pull in the same direction. If you're unequally yoked, we're not. We're not going to go anywhere. Nothing will be produced. There is no movement. There is no going forward. You're stuck when you're unequally yoked. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, you remember the Apostle Paul gave the warning to the Corinthian church, and he said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And, and what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you're the temple of the living God. Listen, that New Testament passage could be applied to Old Testament Jerusalem. They yoked themselves to the idols. And where did it lead? Well, what part did they have with darkness if they were to be in light? No part. 
and nor do we have any part. We must be careful who we yoke ourselves with. But you remember, I also think of the words of Jesus and how I love this passage. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This right here, this yoke of Jesus, is the antithesis of what Jerusalem found in pursuing idolatry. There was no rest. There was no fulfillment. It wasn't easy, it wasn't light, it was heavy, it was burdensome, it was painful, it was lonely, it was empty. And Jesus said, I want to give you the exact opposite of that. There's two yokes out there, folks. Which one do you want? Which one do you want to yoke yourself to? Prayerfully tonight, to Jesus. Many of us, used to yoke ourselves to the world. And it was bitter and it was painful. It was pleasurable for a season, but the end thereof was destruction. And, and the Lord, in a sense, broke the yoke, broke the bondage, delivered us freedom so that we could be yoked to him. Verse 15, the Lord has trampled underfoot all mighty men in the midst. He has called the assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled, that is in a wine press, the virgin daughter, of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children, notice the families affected. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. In verses 15 through 17, make note once again that there is an acknowledgement that it is the Lord who orchestrated what had taken place. The city acknowledges that it has come from the hand of the Lord. And the one who was to be the restorer and the comforter was far See, they had removed themselves from him when he wanted to be near and wanted to be a restore and wanted to be a comfort. Listen, if a person backslides, if a person moves away from the Lord, understand this, the Lord's not the one that moves. We're the ones that move. He's still there. And tonight, if you find yourself tracking with what's being presented and you think, man, that's me, <laughs> Friend, I would encourage you to run back to the one who loves you. Turn from those things. Turn and live, the Bible says. Experience the comfort and the restoration that comes through repentance, genuine repentance. Finally, it says in verse 18, the Lord is righteous. That's an acknowledgement. I've rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all you peoples. Behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers. They deceived me. My priests, my elders, breathed their last in the city. They sought food to restore their lives. See, O oh Lord, I'm in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me. I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves. At home, it is like death. 
They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you've done to me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. You'll notice here in the conclusion of this chapter that there is an honest admission of wrong. There's an honesty, finally, saying, first of all, God's righteous. I'm not going to blame him for the situation. God, it's all your fault. Now, wait a second. It's not God's fault. But sometimes we'd like to blame him. But here they acknowledge the Lord is righteous. And then they say, not only is the Lord righteous, but I've rebelled at his command. That, that's an honest admission. And I called for my lovers. They deceived me. Lord, I am in distress. This is really the road to restoration. It starts with admitting that I'm responsible for what I've done. And to repent of it means to turn, to change direction. A change of mind which results in a change of heart and a change of direction. Worldly sorrow, ah, I got busted. I can't believe you found out. Ah, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> it's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is, is an, I, I've sinned. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Lord, I want to get right with you. I acknowledge that I've been just taking for granted what you have and just assuming that I could sow to the wind and not reap the whirlwind. I've been self-deceived, but tonight my eyes are open and I recognize this stops now. Lord, I want to return to you. I want to be restored to you. Because the enemy, the enemy laughs. Here it says very clearly that the enemy, they hear of my trouble and they're glad. They're glad that you did it. Ha! You thought you said you're a Christian. Ha! They had given the enemies of God reason to blaspheme. They were happy that it was done. In fact, if you read Psalm 137, you'll find, you can read it on your own for the sake of time, but they were chiding the children of Israel, saying, hey, why don't you guys sing us some of those songs you used to sing? You're in Israel. Ha ha. Oh, you're not in Israel anymore? I know, you're in Babylon. I mean, they were making fun of them. And they said, we couldn't even sing. We just took our harps and we just hung them up. We couldn't sing about it. How could we sing? We knew what we had done and why we were in the situation we were in. The enemy was laughing. But tonight... You can be rejoicing. And if in some way the Holy Spirit has spoken to you tonight, like he's so faithful to do when we open the word, maybe he's shed some light on some things that, that you haven't wanted to see. Maybe he's triggered some thoughts that you haven't wanted to think about. 
things that need to change, things that need to stop, things that need to be cut off, things that need to be turned from so that you can once again have that fellowship restored. And, and the Lord is, is waiting for that. And his forgiveness is real. And, and his grace is sufficient. And he wants to forgive. There may be some consequences, but it's far better to allow the Lord to restore you and forgive you and have fellowship with him than just to continue to live a deceived life and go on like, it doesn't matter. So may the Lord continue to speak to us as we go through this book of Lamentations. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we realize that it's like looking into a mirror when we look at your word. There are things that you show us, Lord, that maybe we haven't wanted to look at or see. And Lord, your Holy Spirit is so faithful to make application and bring conviction and give direction when we need it, where we need it. And so tonight, Lord, we just humble ourselves before you and pray, God, that we would consider our ways, consider our destiny, where we're headed. Lord, there's so many things in this world seeking to distract and to pull us off the road and disillusion us and ultimately destroy us. But Lord, help us to be yoked to you tonight, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us tonight? Well, you're halfway through the week. God is good. Oh, I wasn't. That's good. I didn't. I wasn't even. I wasn't even going for that. But I love. That's great. It is true. It is true. So, if you need prayer tonight, I encourage you. Please feel free to come up after the service, and pastors and prayer leaders will be up here to pray for any requests that you might have, any needs that you might have. And, and let me just say to you tonight, just in, in closing, it's not too late for you to get right with the Lord. Don't think that it's too late for me. I've gone too far. Listen, it's, it's not too late. If you can, the Bible says, if you can hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. And if you can hear the spirit of God speaking to you and it's a still small, loving, gracious voice saying, come back to me. It's the conviction of the spirit. It's not condemnation driving you away. It's conviction drawing you in. Respond to that tonight. Lord bless you.